And um, if you have a Bible, like we normally we normally have handouts for you, but the printer thing messed up, so we have no handouts today. Um, so if you have a Bible or a smartphone, I'm just going to be using this, or it's going to be on the screen. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter six, verses 27 through 36, and I will read it, and then we will consider it together. I think I hope we have the same translation. We'll see. Here's what here's what it says. We do not have the same translation. I'm going to read it up here. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 36. But I tell you who hear me, this is Jesus speaking, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray and then we'll look at it together. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in these next few moments um, you would meet us wherever we find ourselves tonight. We find ourselves overwhelmed, we find ourselves burdened, we find ourselves angry, we find ourselves hurt, we find ourselves confused, skeptical, believing, not believing. So Father, wherever we find ourselves tonight, would you meet us, would you renovate us, would you transform us, and and give us eyes to see that which is good and right and beautiful once again. We would ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you're into... U2, but they put out a live album a number of years ago called Rattle and Hum. And, uh, you know, with most live albums, you have people talking before, you know, kind of setting up the song, as it were. And Bono gets ready to set up their song, Helter Skelter, which is a cover of the Beatles song, Helter Skelter, from the late 60s. And you may or may not know um, that around the time of the late 60s, there was a... um, serial killer by the name of Charles Manson that was associated with a lot of um, uh, murders. And what he did is he took the lyrics from that Beatles song, Helter Skelter, and he would basically, and he was with people when, he, when they would murder people, they'd write the lyrics like in blood above the victims, like on the wall. And so all, like that word Helter Skelter has always become associated with like these weird, creepy, terrible things that Charles Manson did in the late 60s. And so Bono, right before he gets up to play this amazing song, Helter Skelter, he says this, Charles Manson stole this song from the Beatles. Tonight we're stealing it back. And he just like launches into it. It's so like rock star, like totally awesome. Because what he's doing is he's confronting this, this kind of scary big thing that has hijacked this really amazing, beautiful song, and he's confronting this and saying, you hijacked this, you've stolen this, tonight we're taking it back. And the, the reason I start this way is because I feel like that's kind of what I'm doing, trying to do tonight, is that there is this amazingly beautiful 
reality, this thing called love, that the culture in some ways has hijacked. So I can't, what I feel like I'm doing tonight is the, you know, the culture's stolen this, and tonight I'm going to try to steal it back. So we're going to look at this topic under three big headings. The hijacked definition of love, the biblical definition of love, and then some practical implications. Okay? So there's your big roadmap. The hijacked definition, the biblical definition, practical implications. So first, what do I mean by the hijacked definition? What, 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 what does our culture basically mean when they throw around that word love? Because if we're honest, that word and that topic is everywhere. Think about music. Uh, the Magnetic Fields, if you're a fan of Magnetic Fields, a number of years ago they put out an album called The 69 Love Songs. It's actually a great album, but every single song on this three CD volume thing is all about love. I don't think Taylor Swift has written a song that is not about love. Um, Think about essentially every Disney movie ever. Love. Uh, The TV shows we watch. The Bachelor, Bachelorette. They're always talking about how they, you know, all the contestants use this language that they, they show because they just want to, quote, find love. And then think about, you know, even the Hunger Games, Harry Potter, they, they can't avoid love interest stories. Um, think about um, even The Walking Dead, creepy, scary, zombie apocalypse show. And they even still have to thread a little love interest in there as well. So love, because this topic has so saturated our vocabularies, I feel like in some ways it has lost its meaning. We use it so much, we think about it so much, we, we experience it so much in culture, it, it's, it's lost its meaning. And here's why I know that that's true, is because people say that they love their cat, and they also say that they love their wife. Same word, radically different meaning. Uh, you say, I love Oscar's tacos, I... I do not love Oscar's Italian, or I, I love you know the balls, and I love God. Like this is the word that we use to describe everything, and it's lost its meaning because it's it's essentially referred to um, everything. And so here's how I would basically describe. Here's how I would define the word love as as it is being used in the day-to-day culture. Here it is. It is when someone or something else makes me feel good right now in this particular situation. I think that's what we mean when we use that word love. It's when someone or something makes me feel good about myself in this particular situation. There's a couple problems with that. The first problem with that is that if you notice, love is essentially referred to as a feeling. It's described as a feeling. And the problem with that is that feelings change. Feelings are constantly in flux. This is why we have such these crazy emotional mood swings about things that we say that we love. You know, you love your new phone because it's working awesome and it's great and it's fast. You hate your phone when it's slowing down, when it's clogging up, when, it, when it's not working right, right? I mean, you love something and then three seconds later you hate it because it's not providing for you something. We can love our team and hate our team in the same exact game based off of their performance, right? If they're going to do it, they're going to do it. Doing this, like you, you can love your team, hate your team in the same exact moment, and, and so, really, when when love becomes associated with a feeling, then it becomes, I love these warm fuzzies that I'm getting from you, but if I'm not getting them from you, then I guess we're not in love, or I don't know if I love you anymore. 
And sadly, this is, this is why I believe that there are so many divorces in this country, in our society, is because the operating principle going into most marriages is this. I will commit to you. I will love you as long as you make me happy, as long as you make me feel good, as long as you're providing the warm fuzzies for me. And, but when, you, when that stops, when I'm no longer happy, when the warm fuzzies stop, when, you're, when this is not easy, when it's actually hard, we use language like we've fallen out of love. So this is the first problem of the hijack definition is it's essentially a feeling. Here's the second problem with that. If you noticed, it's, it's a basically all about you. It's about you being happy. It's me. It's entirely self-centered. So if you think about love, culturally speaking, if you could really boil it down, it's emotion-fueled narcissism. I love the, I love the rush that I get from you because of how it makes <laughs> me feel, what you're doing for me. And so think about it. When your boyfriend or your girlfriend who you claim to love hurts you, uh, what's your reaction? You, you want to distance yourself. Sometimes you want, you want to end the relationship. You want to you know, throw grenades at the other person. Because why? They, they're making life hard for you. Or think about your friend group, friends that you claim to love. If there are other people that you want to impress and your friend group is making you not look cool, you will distance yourself from your friends that you claim to love because it's, it's working negatively against you. It's narcissistic. It's, it's selfishness. So that's, sort of, that's, the, that's the hijacked definition. That's what we've done with love. We've made it a feeling and we've made it about us. But that's not the biblical understanding of love. So what I want to do is I want to transition now and look at, okay, what, is the actual, what does the Bible say about this enormous, confusing topic. So I want to look at the biblical definition of love really under two different headings. I want to look at the mandate of love and then the motive of love. So first, let's look at the mandate. I'm, I'm, looking, I'm not texting. I'm looking up the passage because I don't have a Bible with me. But I want you to know, if you look at verse 27, when the Bible talks about love, rarely, rarely, rarely does it talk about love as a feeling. 99% of the time, it talks about love in terms of an action, of, of behavior, of an act of the will. And here's where I get this from. If you look at verse 27, I'll read verse 27, 28. Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. What he's doing is he's, he's commanding people to love. Now, if love is a feeling, that makes no sense. How can you command a feeling? That's like commanding someone to not be hungry anymore. Commanding someone to stop having a headache. Jesus is commanding an action. He's commanding behavior. That's why in verses 27 through 31, he starts listing out all of these practical things that you can do for your enemy. You can pray for them. You can bless them. You can lend to them. You can encourage them. So think about it like this. Let's say if I brought a, let's say I brought a guy and a girl up here on this stage thing tonight with me. And I said, hey, y'all don't know each other. I want you to introduce yourselves. You introduce yourselves. And I say, okay, I want you to do me a favor now. Love each other. If you're thinking in the cultural way of thinking, you would think that, that makes no sense. You can't just command love because you fall in love. It's kind of like falling into a ditch. You can't control it. It's like catching a cold. You can't control it. It just happens to you. And so maybe if we spent enough time with each other, if we found out we were compatible, maybe we would love each other. But you can't command that. 
But I want you to see that's, ex- that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage. He commands, love your enemies. Love other people. And so if, if you understood the biblical definition of love, and we, we came up here and I said, hey, introduce yourself, love each other, you could say, okay, that's going to be really hard and inconvenient for me, but I can make space for you, I can make time for you, I can encourage you, I can pray for you, I can, I can commit to kind of getting to know you. I can commit to figuring out what your needs are and moving towards trying to meet those needs. Like It's going to take some time. It's going to be inconvenient, but I can do that. And that's what Jesus is saying, is that the biblical definition of love, if I could put it in a sort of boil it down into a definition, a nutshell, it would be this. Love, biblically speaking, is the heartfelt commitment to put someone else first. That's it. It's, it's a heartfelt, genuine, passionate commitment to put someone else's needs above yours. To, to, it, that, and that basically means, therefore, love is always sacrificial. It always costs you something. Love is always cutting into your schedule. It's always cutting into your, uh, your stuff. That's why Jesus says, you know, give to people. Give it to them freely. It's going to cost you something to love people. But there's a, um, there's a pastor right outside of Chattanooga by the name of uh, Joe Novenson. Maybe some of you have heard him. Great speaker. He was our RUF summer conference speaker a number of years ago. And he told this story about his first year of marriage. He was working in a warehouse and he was working in one of these uh, kind of industrial warehouse things uh, where he would feed metal sheets into these, like, giant roller things. Like, you know the big, huge, like, machines that they lay down asphalt with? Like, picture those sort of rollers. And there's two of them. And there's about an 18-inch gap between the two of them. And he, his job was to take some metal sheets and feed it into this thing. I don't, it would do something. I don't know what it would do. That's not the point. But what he did... He was, he was, you know, first year of marriage, and he's reckless or careless, and he accidentally puts his hands into the rollers, and both of the rollers crunch and break every single bone and every single finger on both of his hands. So he's taken to the emergency room, countless surgeries, his hands are in... Um, uh, casts, he has, he has no use of his hands, which means now he is 100% entirely dependent on his wife for everything. To feed him, to assist him in the bathroom, to wipe him. And you got to think, his wife, as she's, you know, their first year of marriage, thinking... This is not what I envisioned when I thought about, you know, my dream, you know, marriage, this love story. I'm guessing in those moments, she was not having the warm fuzzies of like, this is awesome. This is, this is the Hollywood dream I've always wanted. But what she did and what he, what he tells is that this woman was modeling love for him. Self-sacrificial, I'm laying down my life for you sort of love. And he said it, it, it completely moved him. It completely transformed their marriage, even early on. So love primarily is, it, it's, it's a decision. It's a commitment. It's an act of the will to put another person's needs ahead of yours, even when it's messy. Even when it hurts you. Even when people betray you. Even, even when it's inconvenient. Even when it's hard. Love is the, love is the decision to say, I'm going to move towards you, even though this is really, really painful. And really hard. I may get no warm fuzzies out of it. I may get no happiness out of this. 
but love calls you to lay down your life for other people. Now, if you're connecting the dots, you're thinking, I don't want to do that. That sounds really hard. That sounds really impossible. I really hope that's not what my marriage looks like. I hope that this is not what Jesus is really calling me to. How do you get the motive to do this? Where do you get the internal engine to actually compel you to live a life of love like that? Well, Jesus tells you. And so let's look at it. If you look at the very end of this passage, verse 35 Jesus says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High. Why? For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. What Jesus does is he anchors and he roots this call to love born out of a motive of knowing how much you are loved by God first. He says you will only love to the degree that you know how much God has first loved you. So how can you know? How can you know that God's actually loved you? Well, again, the Bible tells you, Romans 5, 8 puts it this way, that God demonstrates his love for you in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus came and he laid down his life when it was incredibly inconvenient for him, incredibly hard, incredibly painful. He extinguished it all. He rang himself out for sinners, for people that were rebellious, people that were angry, people that wanted nothing to do with him. That's how you can know that he loves you. And when that gets into your bloodstream, that's what changes. That's what transforms you into living a life of love. Uh, let me explain it this way. I, you know, I beat up on Disney a second ago. But the, the anti-Disney Disney movie is, of course, Frozen. And we are way into Frozen, big time into Frozen in my house because I have two small kids. And my daughter even wears Elsa gloves to church most weeks, which I think is an act of love because she's thinking, I don't want to freeze my friends, so I've got, I'm, I'm going to wear the gloves. So we're big time into Frozen. And actually, Frozen is really interesting because what it does is I think it, it sets the cultural understanding of love against the biblical understanding of love. So, if, if, by the way, this is going to be a big spoiler alert. So if you haven't seen it, I don't know why you haven't seen it at this point yet. But, but if I spoil it for you, it's your fault, not mine. So <laughs> I'm getting thumbs down in the back. You can close your ears through the next um, three minutes of this. So if you remember the story, um, uh, Anna... Princess Anna, her heart is accidentally frozen by her sister Elsa. People are literally leaving the room right now to not have this, this, this thing spoiled. I'll scream when, it's, when we're done. So her heart is accidentally frozen by her sister Elsa. And we're told at the beginning of the, of the movie, or we're told when this happens, that what? Only an act of true love can thaw a frozen heart. And because you think, as like the culture does in the same way that Anna does, we just assume what that means is an act of true love means a kiss from the man that she's fallen in love with. And so the whole movie begins marching towards getting Anna, who's slowly becoming more and more frozen from the inside out, this kiss that is going to thaw her, this act of true love. But of course the movie takes a little bit of a detour, and I, I, won't, I won't spoil that part, but it takes a little bit of a detour and she doesn't get the kiss. And so as she is beginning to freeze, the villain of the story, of course, this is the climactic scene of the whole movie. The villain of the story comes to Elsa. 
And right before he's about to throw down the blade on top of her, in her last act, right before she completely freezes over, she thrusts herself in front of the blade. And she freezes over as her last, last act. And you think that she has lost her life in the saving of another. But then you remember an act of true love will thaw a frozen heart. And a few moments later, she begins to thaw from the inside out, and the curse is broken. She's set free. And it's, and, it's, and it's fascinating. The reason why I think that is the highest grossing animated movie of all time, the reason why it's the anti-Disney Disney movie, the reason why it resonates with so many people, it so connects, is because it gives you a picture of what true love is. That it's someone willing to give up their life for someone that they actually love. And it's not the warm, fuzzy thing that you thought it was. It's something a lot deeper, a lot more mature. And I think the reason why that connects so deeply with us is because that's also what Jesus has done. He's the one that, out of great love for you and for me, has, has thrust himself in front of the sword. And at the cross, the blade fell on him instead of you. And really, when, when you begin to look at and let that act of true love get into your heart, I think that's what thaws your heart as well. That's what breaks the spell of you. That's what breaks the curse on you and actually frees you from the inside out to be a person of love. So that's the motive. The motive is is love. The motive is not guilt. It's not get out there and love somebody. It's not pride. Get out there and love somebody because this is what real Christians do. It's not fear, which is get out there and love somebody because if you don't, the guy's going to get you. It's the motive is love. Love always awakens love. That's the mandate. That's the motive. That's the biblical definition. Now, we could end here, but I wanted to try to flesh this out with some practical implications. And so this is what I want to do at the end here. And and really, I mean, if you talk about trying to flesh out implications of what it means to love people, this is, in some ways, for the Christians in the room, and I don't assume everybody's a Christian, for some ways, this is, the, this is the project of your life, is to figure out what it means to love people. I mean, the, when you take the love of God into your life, it's like putting a tea bag into your life, and so it colors and it flavors everything about you, how you love God, how you love people. So we could talk about this um, from here on out, but I, w- I want to just give you three quick practical implications as it relates to your particular life. And so I want to look at what, what this means for conflict, what this means for dating, and what this means for breaking up. Okay. Three quick things, and then we'll be done. So here's the, here's the first kind of implication about conflict. Now, my guess is when you experience conflict, either with a roommate or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a friend or a parent, you have one of two reactions. Reaction one is, this person really hurt me. They really annoy me. This is really uncomfortable. So I'm just going to passively withdraw and hope that maybe over time it goes away. If you're roommates, you think, I'm just going to hang on until the lease runs out, and then I'll look for somebody else. Uh, you just withdraw and think, I want this to kind of all go away on its own. It's flight. Or, that's instinct one, or some of you, your instinct is instead of flight, it's fight. I'm going to get more aggressive. I'm going to turn the volume up even louder. I'm going to get snarky. I'm going to get meaner. I'm going to send more text messages. I'm going to blast them with my friends. I'm going to write passive-aggressive stuff on their social media. I'm going to get into this. Fight or flight. And Jesus says, okay, uh, actually, if you think about it, when you're in fight or flight mode, functionally, that person is your enemy. Functionally. 
They're your enemy. You don't want anything to do with them? And Jesus looks at you and says, love your enemy. You want to cut off this relationship, and you're not going to have the right to. Jesus calls you to actually move towards that person. Well, what does that look like? I don't know. I think it can look like a million different things, but at least it looks like engaging them. Bringing to them gently and respectfully your hurts, your frustrations, where you felt hurt by them. I think it looks like listening, for the, listening to them, where they've hurt you, uh, where you've hurt them, rather. Praying for them. It looks like engagement at some level. We want to do fight or flight. We want to avoid. We want to write people off. We want to cut people out of the equation. And Jesus says, no, love them. Move towards love. So that's how love relates to conflict. How does love relate to dating? Well, I think um, the very nature of what love is has implications for when we use that word, love. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the very implications of what love is should affect how frequently and how often we even say that word, love. So think about it like this. If you think about um, an intensity meter on a relationship, guy and a girl starts at zero. When they start innocently flirting with each other, the intensity meter starts to kind of move up to a two. And let's say um, after a while the guy, because he's not a coward, asks her out on a date and actually calls it a date instead of, hey, do you want to hang out? And then it's weird and nobody knows what this actually is. He says it's a date and they go out. Now the intensity meter, it went up a little bit more. And then, of course, at some point in the relationship, it gets to the first kiss. And now the intensity meter went to 40. But at some, if a couple stays together, inevitably somebody pulls the trigger and drops the L-bomb. At some point in the relationship, you, somebody says those three words, I and love and you. <laughs> and when they say it, the intensity meter now goes up to 300. Well, I don't know how high the meter goes, but you know it goes way up when someone says the love word. And so here's what that means. If that's the way that we sort of react and interact with what love is, then the call out of love for the other person is this, is do not use that word flippantly. Actually, out of love for that person, be extremely careful in the way that you use that word. Because if you're going to say that word, I love you, but you are not willing to follow through on putting their interest above yours, then what that means is you're just a liar. And you need to ask them for forgiveness for the way that you've lied to them, to tell them something that you love them when you really don't. What you mean is, I get an emotional rush from you when we're making out. But to say, I love you, means to say, I'm committed to you. I'm, I'm in this. I'm going to put, my, put your interests above mine when it hurts, when it's painful. And if you don't want to do that, if you're not willing to do that, that's fine. Just don't tell them that you love them. Even even out of love for them, maybe go back and say, I shouldn't have said that. That would be a loving thing to say. That would be a loving thing to do. So you see how love has to do with how you say the word love in dating. And here's the last sort of implication. The last implication we'll talk about tonight is breaking up. So I think love even does trickle down into this little weird sphere of the whole breakup scenario. 
It's not like Jesus calls us to love, but here's this one arena called breaking up that it's like all, you know, no holds barred, like you can do whatever you want. You can be as mean and aggressive and hostile as you, part, as you want. No, God calls us to love even in the context of breaking up. Well, what does it look like when you are the one that gets broken up with? If you're the one that's getting broken up with, under the cultural understanding of love, if you're thinking in cultural terms, not biblical terms, then your knee-jerk reaction is to begin to protest and to market yourself in that moment. But I love you. No one's ever going to love you like I can love you. I, I, I would love you through thick and thin. You're, you're protesting. You're basically saying, no, take me back, take me back, take me back. Because you're severing my connection to feeling really good. You can't take this away from me. So let me market myself and give you my resume why you are making a bad decision. This is basically, you, you know the song um, <laughs> by Justin Bieber a few years ago? <laughs> Baby. This is what he's doing in that song. Let me read you a few. I don't know if you've, if you've paid attention to the words, if you've listened to that song forever. This is before Bieber went Miley, if you know what I mean by that. Um, <laughs> but here's what he says. He says, so he's, 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 he's losing his first love for the first time, and here's what, his, here's what his reaction is. He says, for you, I would have done whatever, and I just can't believe we ain't together. And I want to play it cool but I'm losing you. I'll buy you anything. I'll buy you any ring. I mean, do you see how pathetic and desperate that is? To say, you're leaving me. I'll, I'll do whatever. I'll buy you anything. I'll buy you a ring. I'll buy you whatever you want. Would you want to be with someone that offered that to you? Like, would you ever say, okay, I'll come back on the grounds that you give me a yacht? I mean, would you ever want... Dumb, stupid. But the reason why it's so pathetic, the reason why it's so, it feels so weird when you do that, and I know you, you actually have those instincts to say, no, 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 no. But what would it look like to actually love the person who's breaking up with you? To love the person that's breaking up with you would look like, it would at least feel something like this. It would feel, oh, that really, man, that hurts. That really sucks. But you know what? Out of love for you, if, I'm gonna, if I love you in this moment, that means I'm going to put, put your interests above mine. And if your interests are that, are that you would rather date other people or just not be with me, if that's what you want, then out of love for you, I'm going to free you to do that. Guilt-free. I think that's what it would look like to love someone. To say your interests, I'm putting ahead of mine. To even love someone in the moment that they're hurting you. And it sounds like Jesus, right? You're getting wounded, you're getting hurt, but you're still loving them in the moment. But what, but what happens when you're the breaker-rupperer, <laughs> when you're the one that does the breaking up? I, I think how you do that should be shaped by love. Because what we typically do when we break up with people, because it's such an awful, hard conversation, is that we, we amp up our frustration and our anger and we download it on them. And just sort of leave them with all this baggage and all this hurt because it's a lot easier to have that conversation. Or it's we're just going to be cold and distant towards them and hope that they get the hint and then break up with us. And both of those are cowardly. Jesus says, look, don't be self-protective in this moment, but actually love them. Love them in a way that is, is, is kind and gentle and releases them to date other people. And then when you are actually broken up with, loving them looks like not throwing them under the bus around your friends. 
when your friends want to all rally together and talk about how much of a jerk he is or how mean she is, that you can actually step in and defend them and not join in and throwing them under the bus and trashing their name. Do you see how love, it trickles, it affects everything. And, and I'll, end, I'll end here and then we'll be done. Uh, I heard this story recently about a story I never heard about Mother Teresa. And I didn't know this, but apparently there were, there were um, oftentimes these businessmen and CEOs and CFOs that would, that would go to Calcutta to visit with Mother Teresa. You know, she's a little five-foot um, little thing. And they would meet with her because uh, they wanted answers. They wanted answers by why were they at the top of their career, successful, wealthy, but they were empty. They didn't feel like they were fulfilled in life. And so they would go over to Mother Teresa and meet with her. And on one, one occasion I heard the story where um, some high-powered CFO you know, is, is asking her what, what, what the deal is. And she looks at him and says, what's your job? And he starts to explain his responsibilities and all the you know, directs that he oversees and everything that he, he does. And she kind of interrupts him and she says, no, what is your job? And he's confused and he says... But that is my job. That's what I do. She's, she goes, no, that's not your job. That is not your job. Your job is to know how much you are loved by God and then to love others with the overflow of that love. And I think that's a good question for you tonight as we end, is what's your job? As you're here on campus, as you, as you are here on earth, what is your job? What is your, what is your highest calling? What is your purpose? What's your, why, are you, why are you breathing right now? You can answer that question a lot of different ways. The Bible's answer is to look at you and say, your job is to know how much you are loved by God and then to love others with the overflow of that love. And so may the gospel empower you and me to do our job well today and forevermore. Let me pray. Father, would you be gracious and empower us to know how much we are loved by you. We do not believe it if we're honest. If you look at our lives, we betray the fact that we don't really believe it. We hunger and we scamper for anybody to fill us, anybody to love us. We look for saviors everywhere else. And yet you have told us and reassured us over and over again because of the cross that you're committed to us, that you love us. You would be willing to thrust yourself in front of the blade. So would that fill us this night? Would that melt us and thaw our frozen hearts so that we would be empowered to love others with that same sort of self-sacrificial love? Change us from the inside out, we would pray. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.